Welcome to Yet Even Now on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. The following teachings through the book of Joel came out of preparation for the 2020 Yet Even Now conference, which was canceled due to the novel coronavirus. We are overjoyed to be able to share these teachings prepared for this conference recorded in the fall of 2020. Study along with us through the book of Joel using the Yet Even Now Companion Guide found at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com. We pray these teachings will bless you as you hear from the Lord through the prophet Joel. Dayton Women in the Word exists to help women read their Bibles. If you have been blessed by our ministry and free resources, would you please consider giving a donation at DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash donate. I am a sensitive dreamer, which has its benefits and drawbacks. For example, I don't win any prizes for following directions. Back when I was in ninth grade, I was assigned a poetry project. I took it very seriously. I made this elaborate scrapbook. I even burned the edges of the paper with a lighter so it would look old and authentic. And I got a D because I only handed in two thirds of the assignment. Junior year in web design, my teacher, Mr. Morgan, was gracious enough to review the directions for saving our work right before our multimedia exam. And guess who forgot how to do it five minutes afterward and failed as a result? I was generally an A student, but when it came to listening attentively, when the stakes were high, I really struggled. Being a struggling listener, I am grateful our God is willing to do anything to get our attention when we forget who he is, what he wants for us, and what he wants from us. He is willing to do anything to rescue us. God's provision is complete. He gives us everything we need to know and follow him. That is what we are going to focus on today. God's provision is complete. He gives us everything we need to know and follow him. For example, how can we understand God's word? Well, he tells us in his word and puts the Holy Spirit inside us to teach us. He gives us what we need. How can we pray? He shows us in his word and puts the Holy Spirit inside us to pray for us. He gives us what we need. Praying a chunk of scripture is something you can do at home when you feel like the words are hard to find. We're going to begin our study by praying a psalm, Psalm 51, 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Amen. So far in Joel, we've examined a difficult passage. There may have been times in your Bible reading when you've wondered, is my suffering a result of God's judgment on me? The short answer, 
No, we don't have time to explore this deeply right now. As you listen to the rest of our Joel teaching in this series, keep in mind that Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden made way for all kinds of calamity to enter creation. So we are not all individually responsible for every bad thing in our lives. Jesus makes that clear in the Gospels. But we all have contributed to this broader state of brokenness with our sin. That is why we need the message of Joel. Today, we are going to examine the theme of completeness in the first half of Joel chapter 2. The word all is used 16 times in the book of Joel. He does this to emphasize the all-consuming work of both God's wrath and redemption. Throughout the entire book, we see how completely sin destroys, how completely hopeless that destruction seems. We also see how completely God rescues and how completely he wants his image bearers, that's us, to look like him and be close with him again. So in this beginning part of Joel 2, we'll zoom in on a few examples of completeness and we'll move through it like this. First, we'll read Joel 2 verses 1 to 9 and see complete vulnerability and complete terror. Then Joel 2 verses 1 to 14 where we see complete power and complete mercy. And then we'll see in Joel 2, verses 12 to 17, complete turning and complete surrender. You may notice some overlap. This is going to be a cumulative examination of the passage. We'll study one part, then layer another chunk onto what came before it. And after that, we'll step back and prove that God's provision is complete by counting some specific ways God gives us everything we need to know and follow him. Let's get to it. Turn in your Bible to Joel 2, 1. Joel 2 is like a reprise of Joel chapter 1, where he told the Israelites, Listen up, priests and people, the locusts have come and consumed everything completely. Fields and hearts are dry, lament and mourn and cry out this to Yahweh. God, everything is the most gone it could be. In Joel 2, everyone is the most terrified they could be. I'm going to read Joel 2, 1 through 9, and I want you to pay attention to the sensory details in Joel's poetry. Maybe you can even close your eyes and picture yourself in the middle of what's happening, like a movie. Let's see what it says. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish, 
All faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. How did you feel listening to this? Whew. We're going to look at another Bible passage later that says all knees will be weak as water. The CSB version spells out that Hebrew euphemism and says all knees will run with urine. I think that aptly describes the mood here. When I first read Joel 2, I wasn't exactly sure what it meant, but the poetry did its job conveying the fear. I heard the pounding hooves of the war horses and the deafening rumble of chariots. In addition to the sensory emphasis, Joel also uses the language of before and after to emphasize the completeness of the turmoil here, just like in chapter 1. The word all, in all inhabitants, all generations, all faces grow pale, it makes it clear that everyone is vulnerable. Verse 4 says nothing escapes them. The people cannot escape to their homes because those are invaded too. There are no weapons that prove effective against this army. There is complete vulnerability and complete terror. So what does this mean? Like many things in biblical prophecy, there is not consensus about what this section means. Some believe it describes a literal army from the past or maybe an apocalyptic army in the future. Many scholars, though, think it is a metaphorical description of the locust invasion of chapter 1. Several times this force is described like something, like war horses in verse 4, which doesn't make as much sense if it is actually that thing. So, is it a current literal judgment or a future metaphorical judgment? Yes. That leaves us wondering. Joel already did a thorough job describing the horror of the locust plague in chapter 1. Why use metaphor at all then? Since Joel 2 echoes chapter 1, it acts as a bridge to help the audience, both the Israelites and us today, connect eternally significant matters with what they experience and actually see. When I taught second grade, I reminded flustered learners to connect what's new to what you know. Whether it was an unwieldy math problem or spelling list, I prompted them to find a bridge somewhere, a connection from the known to the new. In chapter 2, Joel uses metaphor to connect the actual destruction of the plague they are witnessing with the vastness of Yahweh's power and domain. He uses their current circumstance to direct their gaze upward. He's saying, listen, Israel, eyes up. This prophetic method is part of God's provision. God gives us what we need so we can know him. He is showing us in chapter one, and in case we didn't make the connections on our own, he has Joel zoom out so we can get a fuller picture in chapter two and see how a locust plague is eternally significant. First of all, we see now that this current day of the Lord with the locusts is but a shadow of the future day of the Lord. What seems like complete vulnerability and complete terror is just a taste of God's full wrath. Second, 
the Israelites can understand more about who God is when they look at their current literal experience. More about that in a moment. This bridge building is what God does for us in the whole story or meta narrative of the Bible. Two places you could find this theme of connecting the known to the new are in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, when Jeremiah contrasts the new covenant with the old covenant, or 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 18, when Paul contrasts the new glory and former glory. God has his people author scripture with repeated themes and then is gracious to inspire them to connect those themes to help us understand. When we see similar themes pop up in different times, places, and circumstances in the Bible, we can be certain that our God is always the same. So what exactly can we learn about God's character then from Joel 2 with this bridge to help us? Let's read some more. Joel 2 verses 10 to 14, and we'll put that together with the first nine verses to see who God is. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This bit is one of my favorites. It is spine tingling and breath catching and head exploding. We see that God is so many things and he is all of those things at the same time. And all of the things that he is are very, very good. Before I noticed all of that, though, I had quite a shock. I was reading along, feeling the terror, earthquakes, heavens tremble, sun darkened, then wham, the Lord utters his voice before his army. What? God is the one sending the locust army? I had envisioned some enemy force. My jaw nearly fell to the floor. The phrase, the day of the Lord, is a theme that saturates biblical prophecy. There are days of the Lord throughout the story of the Bible where the Lord is bringing judgment to cleanse, to remove sin, and to move his people toward repentance and restore them to right relationship with him. There is also a final day of the Lord where God will bring judgment once and for all. He will set everything right forever. You'll hear more about that in Joel 3. The cosmic disruption we see in verses 10 and 11 is a common theme in prophecy, particularly with the day of the Lord. One impact it has is demonstrating that the effects of sin are far-reaching, beyond what we can see or imagine. In Genesis 3, sin corrupted all creation— in Joel 1, we learned that sin is as relentlessly destructive as the army of locusts that descended on the Israelites in Joel's day. So if everyone is affected by sin because of the cosmic scale of its corruption and contamination, 
then who can stand sinless on the day of the Lord? Who can endure it? The whole of Joel 1 and 2 so far make it clear, absolutely no one. And then we come to these words, yet even now. Yahweh God calls his people to return to him. We're going to unpack what that means in a moment, but before we do, let's look at verses 13 and 14 where we see God's complete mercy. These verses are lifted out of a famous passage in the Old Testament that is quoted many times throughout the entire Bible. Turn in your Bible to Exodus 34. Here is Moses talking to God on a mountain. God's newly rescued people are three months out of Egypt and have already built a golden calf idol. Yet Moses is asking God for a lot of things. For God to continue on with them, even though they're a stiff-necked people. For God to teach him his ways. And then he asks to see God's glory. God gives Moses everything he asks for. Let's look at Exodus 34, 5 to 7. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You know what it's like when you hear a song from the past? It transports you. You see and feel and remember details from that moment, but also some overarching themes and lessons that happened over a period of time surrounding that moment. So it's the context of the song that comes flooding back and you feel you're living it again. Now, when I was a girl in seventh grade, Oh boy, I was in a boy crazy phase with my friend Katie, and there was this boy in particular, his name was Nick Good, and so we had this, you know, very ingenious secret code, and we would sing the Better Than Ezra Ezra song, it was good living with you, wow, it was good, wow, wow, wow. Now, it's 22 years later, and I hear that song, and bam, I'm there in jazz band looking across the room at Katie and laughing hysterically over who knows what because of this boy. And not only do I remember that specific memory, but I think about my good friend in this friendship that we have that's endured these two decades, how today we're mothers and thankfully out of that boy crazy stage, how we faced hardship and joy together. All of that comes into my mind and heart when I hear that simple song. Another example in my life, several years ago, I felt numb. I was in a rough season. I was putting one foot in front of the other. I was speaking truth out loud to myself, but not really believing it or feeling it. And then one Sunday morning at a gathering, Phil Wing played the song, You've Stayed. You, we have seen you walk before us on journeys long. You were there with us, you've seen us through things so much bigger than us. 
and then light and closeness with God. I was with him and could sense him there. So I hear that song today, years later, and I remember that miraculous moment, but I also remember God's faithfulness to me in the darkness, that he was pursuing me. He was right there with me even when I didn't feel him there. Cross-references in the Bible work just like that, particularly for the original biblical audience who would have likely heard these common passages handed down through generations. And as you grow more familiar with the Bible, this will happen with scripture for you too. So the Israelites who are listening to Joel, they know the Moses story. And when they hear Joel allude to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, the whole context of that passage comes flooding back. And they remember the recent idolatry after the Israelites had just been rescued from slavery. They remember this unworthy people and their incessant complaints. They remember judgment from Yahweh and mercy from Yahweh, his closeness, how Yahweh went with them after the golden calf, his provision, how Yahweh gave the law, a way to expunge their constant sin problems so he could dwell with them, his faithfulness, how Yahweh brought Israelites into the promised land. God's provision for them was complete. He gave the Israelites everything they needed to know and follow him. Joel is reminding his fellow Israelites who God is. He's saying with this passage, don't you remember Yahweh? Do you remember what he does? Remember our ancestors who were marked at the same time by unworthiness and Yahweh's gracious provision. And then, after all this comes into their minds, then we get to verse 14. In Joel 1, we learned the most tragic fallout of the locust plague so far has been their complete insufficiency to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, because literally everything has been destroyed by this plague. They may be wondering if their relationship with their father has been destroyed too. Yet even now, Joel continues, connecting what they know, Exodus 34, to something new. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for Yahweh your God. When I read that, I was reminded of the language in Joel 2 verse 3 about what the locusts leave behind, flames burning and desolate wilderness. We just figured out those locusts were commissioned by God to consume and destroy. But here, God leaves behind a blessing a grain offering, and a drink offering for them to give back to him. He will provide the sacrifice. He gives us everything we need to know and follow him. The Israelites have sinned and are suffering God's judgment for their sin. Even worse, they are completely helpless to restore their relationship with God at his altar because they have nothing to give him. So he provides the sacrifice they need to make things right with him, to be close with him again. Today, he will send away the locusts and send the rain so the Israelites can offer sacrifices to him again. And one day, he will send his son. When that son comes, he will echo the words of Joel 2.14 himself. Let's read Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, that's a grain offering, 
and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, a drink offering, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Earlier, I felt chilled by the question ending the description of chaos and terror in the first chapter and a half in Joel. Joel 2.11 asks, The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? No one resounded in my mind at my first reading. But that's not true. Who can endure it? Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the only one who can endure the wrath of God because he is holy. He is God. Over and over in the Bible, we see how Yahweh relents. He is patient with his people. But he is not a permissive or passive parent. He's not willing to let sin run rampant and pollute his creation forever. He is too loving for that. At a critical moment in world history, Yahweh relents over disaster toward all humans except one. There is one man, the only one who has ever perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law, who does not receive the Father's relenting. He receives his wrath instead. Where do we see the perfectly clear demonstration of God's justice and mercy? How can we read Exodus 34, 6, and 7, knowing that God's wrath and grace are not contradictory attributes of his? When do we know that God is never changing, steady, faithful to his word at the cross? God's provision is complete. He gives us everything we need to know and follow him. He will destroy sin and at the same time preserve the people entangled in it. He does this by providing the perfect sacrifice himself. Once and for all, sin is defeated by Jesus' death and resurrection. Once and for all, humanity is restored if they turn. Let's move on to our final section, complete turning and complete surrender. We see the words turn or return three times in this chunk of Joel. This is the Hebrew word shuv. Say that with me, shuv. It is used to describe both repentance, turning toward God, and apostasy, turning away from him. It also describes God's position, whether he turns toward or away from his people. By repeating this, Joel is showing that turning is essential to restoration. Then God, who gives us everything we need to know and follow him, gives Israel directions for how to turn and what it looks like. 
Let me read the remainder of our passage today, Joel 2, 15 to 17, and we'll combine that with verses 12 to 14 and pull out what God wants us to do. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The first essential step in returning to the Lord is back in verse 12. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Our turning must be complete. And Joel shows us that complete turning is marked by grief. Turn in your Bible to Ezekiel 21, 6-7. God is calling Ezekiel to prophesy a coming day of the Lord and then specifies what Ezekiel's posture should be when he does this. As for you, son of man, groan. With breaking heart and bitter grief, groan before their eyes. And when they say to you, why do you groan? You shall say, because of the news that it is coming. Every heart will melt and all hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and it will be fulfilled, declares Yahweh God. There are 21 expressions of mourning in the book of Joel. Why does God want his people to return grief-stricken? Well, I see two reasons here. God calls his people to groan and lament sin because, one, it leads to intimacy and shows we are in his family, and two, it makes us look like him when we share his response to sin. First, grief leads to intimacy. My sweet grandma went to heaven last year after battling cancer. She planned her funeral, of course, and her highest priority was that her family go up on the stage together for the last song, Glorious, by Hillsong. So we packed all 70 of us up there. My grandma's mom, that's my great-granny, she's 99, her children and their spouses, the grandchildren and our spouses, and her still-growing population of great-grandchildren, all of us were bound by aching that marked us as family. The deep grief that weekend of the funeral was exhausting. I told my mom that I was so sad my whole body hurt. But should it have been any different? Of course not. It revealed our our love for her. When we grieve sin, brokenness, and pain, it shows that we care deeply about what's lost, just like God does. It leads to intimacy between us and shows that we are in his family. Secondly, grief over sin makes us look like God. Remember the cosmic disruption sin causes? The entire universe is sent askew because the order and completeness God crafted in Genesis 1 has been corrupted. We were created in the image of God to look like him, to create like him, to love perfectly like him, 
and then sin enters and distorts those perfect images. God is deeply grieved by that. Yet even now, in the wake of the disaster, when we are standing in the ashes of our wrong choices, there is still a chance to make our warped countenance look like our father's. Joel challenges his people over and over again in chapters 1 and 2 to fast, lament, weep, mourn. He is showing them how to bear God's image rightly in the midst of the mess their sin has caused. In addition to complete turning marked by grief, God is also calling his people to completely surrender. The beginning of chapter 2 was heavy with military images. There is nowhere to run or hide. There is no use fighting. The only thing left to do is surrender. What does this actually look like? Verses 15 to 17 describe an urgent trumpet blast calling everyone right now to gather. This act of surrender needs to disrupt other seemingly important things, like a baby nursing or a newlywed couple in their marriage bed. Everyone abandons whatever they're doing because nothing else matters. Like any other surrendered people, they have no leverage. There is no other recourse but to plead for mercy, appealing to the Lord's good character. Repentance is a word that summarizes these two concepts, turning to God and away from sin, and surrendering all your broken heart pieces to him. So how might this change us? It's important to know that deep grief over our sin is much different than deep shame. The difference between grief and shame comes down to what happens after we are confronted with the ugliness of our sin. It concerns the direction of our gaze and the direction of our movement. A heart that's lamenting sin has a gaze that moves from the sin and locks on Yahweh. We see his grief over sin and realize this isn't how it's meant to be. Having our eyes up means we will see that God's provision is complete. He gives us everything we need to know and follow him. Focusing on God's character compels us to run toward him. We run closer to lament alongside him, to find shelter under the covering of the blood of Jesus, Yahweh's perfect sacrifice, who washes all our sin away. Now a heart that's overcome with shame has a gaze locked inward. There we see all the secrets hidden away in our hearts, all the ugliness that nobody else knows about, and make it our mission to keep that hidden. We think in order to be loved, we have to clean it up first. Fixating only on our sin compels us to run away from God. We flee fast and furious because coming toward the light means exposing everything, which we think will be our undoing. We completely miss God's complete provision because our eyes are only looking in. Friends, hear this. He is not calling us to return unblemished. Look again at verses 13 and 14. There is no requirement of cleanness or purity. The requirements are all in brokenness. Rend means violent tearing. All these specific descriptions of grief make it clear. God is calling us to come wrecked, broken, low, and right now. God's provision is complete. He gives us everything we need to know and follow him. Let's count some of that. What has he given us exactly? I'm going to fly through this list. He's given us prayers to pray in the Psalms and elsewhere in scripture. 
He's given the Holy Spirit inside us to help us understand the word. He's given us repeated themes across scripture that act as bridges, connecting what we know to something new and expanding our understanding of who he is. His spirit speaks into our confusion about the word when we take time to listen. He provides the sacrifice. And since he provides the sacrifice, he's not asking you to give what you do not have. He invites us to grieve sin, allowing us to look like him and emulate his character in the middle of the mess that we've made. He says, listen, wake up, sound the trumpet over and over. He goes to great lengths like locust plagues to draw his people back to himself. He gives specific directions for turning to him with all our broken hearts. What good gifts these things are. What a generous and good father who's given them to us. How can we look at this list, knowing it is just a small sampling of all his gifts, and think that we have to achieve or earn his love? When we remember who God is and his complete provision, we can throw off our shame. We can lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. He is the one who provides the sacrifice. Will that loving father reject you because your sacrifice is not enough? No, he has already given it for you. It is already done. Complete turning does not earn us God's favor and grace. He has already given those things. Complete repentance enables us to receive the gifts he's already given. His love is already yours. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last speech to the nation of Israel right before he dies. He is imploring them throughout the entire book, to choose the path of obedience, to turn to the Lord, to choose life. He warns them about what will happen if they don't. And then he says this in Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 to 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. God's provision is complete. He gives us everything we need to know and follow him. You have everything you need to repent today, to turn toward God and surrender yourself to him. God has given me what I've needed to repent too. It's no secret I cry a lot. This has been a lifetime embarrassment. Most people's ugly cry is just an average day for me. And I have complained in prayer many times since I was a little girl. God, if you made me this sensitive, could you have at least given me a less puffy crying face? Once I was at the Dayton Women in the Word Teaching Collective. And by the way, if you don't know what that is, please check out the website to find out more. I was listening to a panel of Bible teachers share their experience and wisdom when BAM! The weight of my sin falls on me like an anvil on wily e. Coyote. 
Here I am in a group of only 20 women and nowhere to hide with tears streaming down my face and snot flowing every which way. My friend Natalie is next to me and leans over to share a Bible joke, nerd to nerd, only to find me wheezing. She squeezes my knee in support and I feel like I could just melt into the floor. Indeed, the puddle around me makes it seem like I already have. Inside, as the weight of my sin presses down, my embarrassment grows. Here we go again. I'm being wrecked by the spirit at the most inopportune time. I rue the inconvenience of it, that I am a spectacle, that this conviction can't be a private thing. I want the sin he is rooting out of me to be part of my past tense testimony. I don't want to wear it on my face for the next several hours. And then God speaks. This is what I want from you, Laura. I want you to abandon dignity. Come to me humiliated. Come to me wrecked and broken. Forget what you're in the middle of doing and come to me right now. Now, of course, crying is not the measurement of repentance, but a soft heart that is ready for God's conviction and call to obedience, that is. After Collective, I was driving home that night considering what God was teaching me, and it made me chuckle that despite a lifetime of tears shed, I was always tissueless when overcome with emotion. It occurred to me that being physically prepared for my emotions would be a tangible reminder to be spiritually prepared. I thought of people who carry handkerchiefs. They seem so dignified in their preparedness. Maybe I could be one of those handkerchief people, I thought. I promptly ordered a set of hankies when I got home, and now when the tears come, I feel ready to catch them and ready to be changed. Is there a broken part of you that you've been hiding, trying to clean up on your own? Will you run toward your father and lament that with him? Do you find yourself in a circumstance that has you overwhelmed or frustrated or desperate? Will you ask our generous, giving father to give you eyes to see what he can teach you right now? Will you ask him to connect what you know, what you're experiencing, to something new and deeper knowledge of his character? Here is today's truth in a nutshell. We are all worthy of swift, all-consuming judgment, but God's provision is complete. He gives us everything we need to know and follow him. When we focus on who he is, we can throw off shame and run toward him. When we immerse ourselves in his word and the testimony of fellow believers, when we list examples of his provision, that is exactly what will keep our gaze fixed on him. And when we are overwhelmed by his complete provision, we turn, ready to be changed. Then the next day we turn, and the next day turn again, so we look more and more like our Father. This habitual turning becomes deeply part of who we are as His children, forming a wheelbarrow rut in the ground that guides us back to our good Father as we bring Him the entirety of ourselves, low and broken. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, search our hearts and reveal our sin to us. Jesus, thank you for enduring the consequences of our sin so we can stand blameless before the throne. And Father, 
Create clean hearts inside us, renew a right spirit within us, and continue drawing us toward you. Amen.